we are very, very tapped in with our Gen Z and millennial audience to the point that we do become one of the most engaged brands across the board. So I think that authenticity, evoking emotion, all those things are so, so important in content creation in the digital space. It's that consumer demand that will drive a lot of the change in sport that's already been seen in, in, in music and other industries. Hello and welcome to The Amp Amplified, a podcast series from Ampere Analysis, where we speak to voices in the industry about the latest innovations, trends and important issues in the wider media sector. This episode, entitled Driving Sports Engagement Through Digital, is hosted by Manal Mota, who will be joined by Varun Bose from Bleacher Report and Daniel Ayres from Seven League. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to The Amp. And to hear more about Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Amp Amplified. My name is Manal Mota and I'll be your host for today. So in sports, maintaining a relationship between rights holders and audiences has never been more reliant on media consumption in the digital space. With the continuing boom of existing platforms and the exponential growth of new ones, understanding how best to create and distribute content online continues to present itself as a key challenge for brands, leagues and clubs alike. In this episode, we're going to be exploring how rights holders can drive audience engagement in the digital age. To discuss this, I'm very excited to be joined by two guest contributors today, Varun Bose, Director of Special Projects for Social at Bleacher Report in the US, and from the UK, Daniel Ayres, Consulting Partner at Seven League. Now, as we have two different experts from either side of the pond, let's begin by looking at the differences between the European and the US context. Daniel, let's start with you. How distinct are the ways in which sports rights holders and platforms use digital as a way of engaging audiences in the two different regions? There's a couple of cultural differences between US and European ones. Um, And I think that drives some of their tonal differences in the way they they produce content and the way they maybe kind of hype matches before the matches take place. Um, Certainly, I think there is a and this is very broad brush uh, generalization here, but the degree of sort of jeopardy in European sport where you've got promotion relegation and maybe also the kind of the, the intensity of local rivalry is maybe a little higher than it is in in, in, in the US. Um, and, and what that leads to is maybe a little more reticence from European sports rights holders at the club level, I'm talking now, a little more reticence from them to kind of overhype stuff too much just in case it goes wrong and they get beat and they look silly at the end of it. Whereas when I kind of see the the kind of pre-match hype stuff that comes from you know basketball teams in the US and, and so on, like they go for it full out and they're not really bothered if like it ends up, you know, they they've really they've really hyped it up and it doesn't happen. It's fine. And apart from anything else, there's a million matches. So there's just another one in three days and like you're on to the next one and, 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 and it doesn't really matter. So um, so there's definitely that tonal thing and the way of dealing with defeat um, uh, and things like that is done quite differently. I think in terms of the how they use the different digital platforms and, and, and channels, there's a difference in sheer just proximity to the big players in that market. So if you're in, if you're a US rights holder, you are going to have a closer relationship with Facebook and with Google and with um, with, with all the other platforms in that area than you are if you're, you're in Europe. And all those all those platforms obviously have European support teams for sports and sports partnerships teams and, and, and things like that. But nevertheless, with the best one in the world, like you have a closer relationship to kind of new features and so on if, if, if you're in the US, I think. Um, Varun, would you agree with that? Do you find that actually that tonal difference is quite substantial between the two regions and that being closer to the social partners helps you leverage that platform better for your clients? 
I can speak to the tone side and say that it's so interesting to hear the, the other perspective because I don't know that I'm so in tune with, you know, how things are happening in the UK or the, in Europe. Um, yeah, we're definitely using our social channels to hype up everything at any time. You know, we're, we sit in a place at Bleacher Report where we're really lucky where, you know, we're not focused on one team or one player at any given time. So we have the advantage of sort of analyzing the matchup, the game, whatever it is. And we can prepare assets for both ways and we can find whatever storyline comes out of a game and still use our social channels to tell that story um, at the end of a game. But pregame, obviously, there's so much to do across the board um, to engage our audiences. And it's funny because, you know, I think a lot of times um, the expectation is to drive tune in maybe. But realistically, we're just trying to tell stories and we're just trying to say, hey, this is why it will be fun to watch this game later today. Not, hey, you need to watch this game because blah, blah, blah. It's really just hey, this is going to be interesting. And we're not going to go out of our way to say, hey, you know, I, I know that um, Daniel mentioned that, you know, there are so many games, same thing here, but whether it's the basketball season, NFL season, there's hundreds of games happening at any time. We're looking for the best and we're looking for the most important stories. If some two teams are playing that there's no real storyline there, we're not going to push it just to push it. Uh, we're truly trying to find the most important storylines that are happening and build our content around that so that our audience is truly engaged in watching what we believe will be the most interesting thing of the night. And I, I guess the difference if you're a rights holder in the terms of you're a club um then your audience or, or even a league like your when we talk about who you're communicating to your audiences through digital like it, it's sort of quite easily defined if you're a club right because you have people that are your core audience uh you know your, your, your sort of hardest hardcore fans that will uh go to games and are kind of in close proximity and then you probably have international audiences who maybe follow players more and they, they might they not your team but they may like you know several other teams as, as, as well and follow the sport as a whole um but actually defining your audiences and going okay do we need to make different content for these people versus these people that's relatively straightforward i'm not saying everyone's great at doing it but it's, it's relatively straightforward in terms of where the where the lines are between those if you're a media publisher Varun, you're like your audience is kind of everyone just picking up on that then Varun, when you're creating content do you distinguish between different audiences or are you just looking to create the best content knowing that it will most likely appeal to everyone i, I mean we're always thinking about our entire audience and that obviously means like the whole group as a subset, but also the different subsets within the audience, the overall audience, right? Um, you have to cater your content to the storyline. I think that's the most important thing. You have to tell the best stories, whether it engages a large audience, whether it engages a small audience. I think it's as a publisher that holds the rights for the NBA, for example. It's still important for if, if the Utah Jazz, as an example, which may or may not be the most popular team across the board, not certainly compared to like the Lakers, for example, if they're doing something great, like they're, you know, number one in the standings or they're one of the players scored 50 points, like we're just going to tell that story. That's important. And that's kind of uh, a mantra that we hold true no matter what. Um, but at the same time, if the Lakers are doing something, that's going to go out too. So look, we're, we're always catering our content. We're, we're thinking about our audience and we're thinking about our voice nonstop. Um, but at the end of the day, we're, we're still trying to tell the most important stories, regardless of how big of an audience it might reach or not. Um, because we know the power of our platform and we know that you know what, what we say and what we put out there is is of value to a, a group of people. I think storytelling is going to be quite a big theme throughout this conversation and it actually leads me quite well onto my next question. So a lot has been made about a lack of engagement with sports among younger audiences and in a way it's so much harder now to capture their attention with how many different media platforms there are vying for it. And occasionally there is a simplistic view of, quote unquote, we need to use digital to engage these demographics. 
Now, Daniel, when you hear this, what do you think? I think that it's it's something not only younger demographics that are that you use digital to, to communicate with. Like it's pretty much everyone now that you that you can reach through all of these channels. Um, I think the the point that the that that statement is is getting at is that I guess the concern that lots of sports have that their sort of average viewing audience on TV is getting older and older, and you see it these stats come out regularly, whether it's for golf or tennis or or, or baseball or, or whatever. That uh, audiences are getting older, so a degree of panic about what can we do to contact to sort of try and capture those younger audiences um which i guess is based on the assumption that if you don't capture someone into your sport before they're 21 or whatever then then they're they're lost to you which i don't think is true necessarily like someone could be a fan of become a fan of a sport at at any age but i i do think um there is and and you're right this will be a theme that we return to through through the podcast i think um so seven league uh we we released uh a report at the start of this year called the third age of, third third age of sport which looked at a number of issues and and, and where we feel like sport is going in a in particularly in a, in a digital context and one of those is this area of how you'd say for well, probably younger millennials and generation z or gen z as uh, they would be in america that um, actually the their set of values and the kind of Desire for a, a shared sense of purpose with the brands and um, and, and uh, kind of uh, individuals that they follow and, and that they uh, will align themselves with is a big part in making that choice of selection. And that actually, kind of sports need to be able to present those values to people um, to, to, to that demographic in order to attract them in. And it's it's super easy, I think, particularly uh, if like me, you are at the end of the young end of Generation X, um, it's super easy to kind of scoff about some of that stuff and go, well, like, is is it really, um, like, it's not like no one watches sport on TV anymore. And it's, you know, is are, are these people really that that hard to reach? But I think we are seeing more and more, um, more and more evidence come through that actually that alignment of values and purpose um, that, that that generation is looking for, it really is true. It's not just a thing. It's not just like a woke thing. And I, I kind of personally have no problem with the phrase woke because to me, it's just people who have empathy for fellow humans and and, and kind of, <laughs> and, 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 and the things like that. Like it, that's not a terrible thing. Um, but I think that if really a lot of sports and a lot of sports rights holders, like arguably their vision is, their vision at the moment is, make more money out of our sport. And that's not a great value set to align with. And of course, they will all have a set of values that they that they would say are their values. But really, internally, they're trying to make more money out of that sport. That, 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 that's their vision. So uh, if, if they're honest with themselves. So, so actually, I think that sport is probably a little behind other brands or the non-sport brands in kind of thinking, actually, we have to put a face out there that is authentic, that you know, even just shows what our values are and, and has an authenticity around it. And, and that actually, you'd argue that probably more so than leagues or clubs, athletes are leading the way in that at the moment. And, and it's much easier to identify with the values of an athlete um, than it is with the values of a, of, of a club or a, or, or a league often. Um, um, so sorry, sorry to cut you off there, but you do make a very important point about fans and audiences being able to align with the values of athletes and individuals more than, say, clubs and organizations can but also in terms of brand perception i imagine that rights holders will be quite keen to know how to leverage that authentic voice can you give us an example of someone you've worked with who's been able to do that a, a relevant sort of 
topical example, so Leicester City, which is uh, one of the clubs that I've worked with for, for kind of five, six years now. And their brand values, they, they, they actually do. And I think when you get under the surface of most leagues and clubs, like they almost all do do good community work. They almost all have like good sort of foundation schemes and do stuff in, the, in, in their local community. You don't hear loads about it, but they generally do. And I think the perception of Leicester against other Premier League football clubs is uh, it's pretty positive in general in terms of the sort of the alignment of values from the ownership down to the down to the playing staff down to the admin staff down to the fans and um, you sort of see that there are you know various sort of nice things that the owners do for the fans whether that's kind of free beer at, at a game at Christmas or a, you know a beer and a mince pie for free at Christmas or it's things I'm actually I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a member of Leicester because uh partly for testing reasons but also because I do like them having I'm not I'm not a Leicester fan specifically but I, I do like them before the FA Cup final that was just played uh, this weekend just gone we uh I, I was sent a, a kind of an FA Cup final pack through the post I didn't ask for that there was no promise of that previous but they kind of invested the money to post out all this stuff and I got some face paints and some uh, some badges and, and and things like that and so they do do that stuff but they don't really talk about it but for all of the sort of brand you know however many hundreds of thousands of pounds that you could possibly invest in sort of doing brand work and and and, and initiatives and things like that I think there's a clip at the end of the FA Cup final uh, at the weekend where top the owner came down onto the pitch was welcomed onto the pitch by the players like got to lift the cup and was kind of embraced by a bunch of the players and there was a Every single media outlet reported on that as a great example of like how a club is aligned and has a good set of positive values. And certainly when you set that against all the other clubs in the Premier League and the the, the European Super League stuff that's been going on recently, um, I think as much money as Leicester could have invested in doing brand positioning work, they won't do they won't be able to do anything that has as much positive impact as that kind of short clip that was that's, yeah, that's been seen uh, around the world on, on on social media a lot. So I think. You know, it, it's demonstrating that by doing it and living it. And I think that does have authenticity and that puts someone like Leicester in a in a good place to grow because there's a lot of people like their story and it, it is an authentic story. Yeah, I saw that clip and I wish that it was my club so much. It just feels like a club who puts their fans first. But actually, there was something really interesting that you were talking about the values and Gen Z really enjoying that purpose-led side of it. Now, Varun, you guys obviously have that direct connection with this audience. Is that an important part of the storytelling when you're building content either for yourselves, but also for clients who you might be working with as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question. I mean, every, you know, I, I talk to my team all the time and I say that, you know, our goal is to evoke emotion with anything, anything and everything we build. Um, you know, whether it's a highlight, whether it's a, a hype tape, whether it's, you know, something silly, whatever we're putting out there, the goal is to evoke emotion, period. And that sometimes comes through what the athletes are doing on the court, on the field, etc. And we can show that. Or sometimes that just comes from the content we're making. Um, I remember that we are our BR football content creator squad. Um, they created something for when Liverpool won the title, uh, this short form animation that went super viral all across Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And it was a story of uh, a father and a son. Uh, you, you see them sort of walking. I'm, I'm moving my hands in front of a computer. And obviously, people are just listening to me. But they're walking. And, and it shows throughout the years kind of, you know, that relationship between the father and the son. And, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of years, how long it took for Liverpool to win the title. Uh, but it, it goes through year by year. And you can see the emotion uh, through it in that the father gets older and older and the son gets older. And 
at one point, you know, you see, I'm getting tears in my eyes just thinking about it because it was so well made. You see um, the son at his father's grave because he's passed. And you see him uh, wearing his scarf that he had handed to him when he was younger. And then the son, as, a, as an older man now, uh, has his own son and he passes it along to him and shows the whole celebration. So very emotional and, and obviously like a very impactful piece of content that went very viral. And that was because it, it had that emotion tied to it. So I think that's so, so important, especially with a younger generation. We see that all the time. Um, you spoke a little bit about how there's that connection with athletes as well and how important that is. We, we find that, uh, that we're building our content, not necessarily as a publisher, Bleacher Report, Across all of our brands, realistically, we're really building content around athletes. We're not building them around teams anymore. The focus isn't so much the Lakers or the Trailblazers. It's very much LeBron James or Damian Lillard and sort of telling the story about what they're doing on the court or on the field, but also what they're doing at their homes via their own personal Instagrams, what they're doing, you know, as businessmen, what they're doing as uh, family men, et cetera. So it's important to show that 360 view in order to really build that attachment with your audiences through digital. And just going back to your question way earlier, when you mentioned, you know, how important is it for that young generation in digital? Yeah, we obviously know that um, the, the Generation Z and, and millennials, like they're very, on, very much on digital. But I think we spoke earlier a little bit about how you can't just, you know, square peg, round, uh, round peg, square hole it, I think, uh, in that you can't just say, okay, great, everyone's on digital, let's just put out digital content, you still have to think about what you're putting out there, how you're evoking that emotion, with the specific audience that you're trying to build. And I think all of those things, if you combine them, if you have smart creators and you have authenticity behind it through who you hire, who you bring in, that's where you see success like Bleacher Report has, where we are very, very tapped in with our Gen Z and millennial audience to the point that we do become super, like one of the most engaged brands across the board. So I think that authenticity, evoking emotion, all those things are so, so important in content creation in the digital space. Through, I'm interested in how, when athletes uh, inevitably get uh, quote unquote political and talk about issues that are from politics, um, like I don't know, well, I don't know if the Marcus Rashford stuff translated across to the States particularly, but I'm sure you're, you're, uh, you, you covered it. But um, I mean, Marcus Rashford is relatively non-controversial because he was doing generally nice things that, <laughs> that were helping people. And and, and that, that didn't seem particularly divisive. Um, Unless you remember the the cabinet in the UK, but um, but presumably for some of those issues that some of those athletes raise, they are more divisive. And and how do you like how do you deal with that in terms of aligning bleachers' values um, with what stances that athletes are taking? It's a great question. I think at the end of the day, it's important to you know we're a publisher. We're, we're trying to tell stories as we've talked about. We're also reporting news and reporting what's happening in the world, and you know. Lots of publishers I've noticed that are in the same space that we are who try to keep things fun and light about sports, they tend to ignore these things. And we have very much not. And it's very important for us as, as, as a reporting entity and as a publisher to not ignore those things. Now, you know, certainly we have to, we have a large group in our content standards team and our, our, our QC teams and a lot of smart people in the room talking about these things about how we're going to publish them and how we're going to attack them at the end of the day. Um, but it's not something we're ignoring anymore. When LeBron James comes out and says, hey, blah, 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 whatever he does, you know, we're not ignoring that. Uh, whether it's LeBron, whether it's any of these athletes, Marcus Rashford, as you said, who you mentioned non-controversial, I believe it's the, it was the feeding of like getting food to children. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Should children have food? <laughs> I don't think that's very controversial. I don't think I'm going to get shut down on that one. But, you know, we're, we're putting that out there. We're making sure that people are aware of that because, you know, at the end of the day, we have a platform. 
they have platforms and we want to make sure we're telling the right stories and, and amplifying the right type of messaging. Are we doing it in a positive way? Are we doing it in a smart way? Are we doing it in a fair way? Absolutely. And we're having those conversations behind the scenes, but it's certainly something that we're not shying away from. And it's certainly something that is of high importance to us, regardless of what they're saying. I think, Daniel, you ask an important question there in terms of aligning values between publishers such as Bleacher and audiences in general. With that, we've seen an increased willingness to sort of embrace certain values and stances, which are potentially controversial when it comes to creating content in the digital space. So is this a trend you've picked up as well, Daniel? Publishers and brands being quite staunch on topics and issues which were previously very much shied away from. And what would you say has been the impact of this? Yeah, I think you see a shift from clubs and and, and leagues as well, maybe lesser leagues, but clubs certainly feeling braver to take a stronger stance on that. So let's say they do a um, uh, like an LGBTQ um, piece of content. Um, and actually Leicester did a good series recently on, on trans um, transgender fans and their experiences of coming to football, like after their transition and, and how they felt about it. But inevitably under under in the comments under stuff like that like you get people going uh not my club stay out of politics like i'm like i'm done with you and you're getting you are now seeing reasonably regularly the clubs respond to that and go fine like if, if that's your attitude like then we're not then we're you we don't really need you as a fan um so i, I guess you, you you're starting to see people being braver about kind of like making it clear we're not tokenistically doing this stuff because it's it's whatever you know awareness week or day of the year it is like this is genuinely you know, trying to show that degree of authenticity which i think is, is you know, good and positive yeah absolutely and i think it makes them so much more human when you think about leicester doing something like that you know aligning their values with those that maybe wouldn't traditionally be considered when you're looking to appeal to football fans but actually by doing this they're able to show that the club is a safe place for not only fans but just everybody to come to it feels like such a shift from where we were even a decade or two ago when i'm sure that clubs would have definitely avoided these types of issues I'm going to move on a little bit in terms of new types of content. So we've seen a content explosion, particularly in the last 12 to 18 months um, in short form content. And it's been mostly led by TikTok. But then we've got Instagram, who've got their stories, and now they've got their reels. Daniel, have you seen rights holders and brands pivot their content strategies in reaction to the popularity of this new type of content? Uh, I think in reaction is the is the key phrase there. So, so yeah, like I, I think like lots have, but it's but it, it but it is quite reactive. And I guess there's always a balance for them of how much resource do we have, how much how much like time do we have to create different stuff. And I think TikTok arguably is the like the first new platform where you genuinely have to create content that is a like totally different to any other channel that that, that, that you do, and that really does require sort of whether it's dedicated or certainly dedicated dedicated creative. Um, and I guess at, at the moment as well, TikTok is probably the platform where you reach outside your follower audience the most as well. Obviously, that happens on all, that happens on all channels, but it's the the way TikTok algorithm works is that actually for your stuff that goes big on TikTok, like it, it goes um, it goes way way outside your your, your follower audience. Um, so I guess we've got the same thing coming at the moment with audio and people looking at Clubhouse and, and Discord and Spotify and, and, and even and podcasting obviously as well. Um, and, and people going, oh, is audio a thing where we need to dedicate resource to? And I think like. They're all doing it. Um, 
I'm not sure I'd say that there's a huge amount of strategy behind it. That like it, it, it's being done because um, like they see other people doing it and there's opportunity to do it. And as ever, when when there's a new platform, like it's easier to grow on TikTok at the moment than it is on any other platform because it's new and it's growing. It, the platform is growing faster, so there's a, there's a certain amount of kind of being able to grow your numbers and show good numbers on brand new platforms easily. And certainly for paid spend that you're doing, and that I mean TikTok's paid um advertising platform is is there but it's pretty um it's not super mature at the moment and actually if you are spending on it you're probably going to do really well and get lots of very cheap kind of acquisition and engagement through through a paid strategy because there's very little competition on 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 that platform as well compared to twitter or 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 facebook or instagram but i think that yeah yeah, i think there's an element of, of, of of the sort of if something's delivering what appear to be great numbers, then then that does have an appeal to to, to content teams. And I think we've certainly seen the the growth in Instagram, while it's still like strong, is slowing. Like the it was it's been very sort of easy to grow on Instagram over the last three or four years because the platform's been growing at such a rate itself. And as long as you're on there and doing reasonably right stuff, then that then you grow with it. And that's starting to flatten out now. But TikTok is TikTok is um is a place where you can grow, uh, continue to grow. And there's always, you know, with every with every new platform and content format that comes with it, there are always a whole slew of being the first to do a this or that or something else on that on, on on that platform. And I think those things, they do have some strategic value in kind of defining the the rights holders brand in terms of are they A, I mean for start, are they an interesting follow? Um, but B, if you can build a reputation of being good at that stuff and innovative at that stuff, um, then that does have an impact on your ability to attract kind of commercial partners that are interested in partnering with people that are known to be good at that stuff. Um, uh, so, so there are strategic reasons for doing it. I'm just not sure that it's being done strategically more than it's being done tactically by, by most at the moment. Varun, are you seeing a similar thing with the clients that you're working with as well? Is it more of a reactive, we need to use your short form platforms in order to reach fans? Well, from our client's perspective, yeah. I mean, we're having people come to us all the time and, and working with in partnership with all kinds of brands to, to build content that we want to publish on our platforms and they want to sponsor. I mean, there's no question. Um, I, I, I will say though, um, just going back to different platforms and building content and the rise, you know, I've been doing this for seven and a half years and it feels like every other day there's a new platform to build on. And I think, um, you know, I'll use, the t- I'll use TikTok as an example. Uh, our House of Highlights brand um, so we have our Hustle Highlights brand, which is our, you know, all of our best highlights has an amazing following, I think like 22 million on Instagram. And when TikTok came out, they jumped immediately on as well as Bleacher Report, but they jumped really quickly on uh, a TikTok. And they have uh, a subset of talent called the Broadcast Boys, who I think they went from zero to 100,000 in a week followers, which is unbelievable. And um, it, it just, I, I mentioned that because Daniel was mentioning how quickly your growth and, and how amazing TikTok is in terms of just the the reach you can have in terms of if you build good content. But I think no matter whenever a platform pops up or whatever happens, I think at the end of the day, the most important thing, and I hate to use the buzzword of storytelling again, but it is about storytelling. And it's just all about adapting your storytelling to whatever the platform has to offer. So I don't think it's so much just a reaction to short form content. I, I also do think that it's what the platforms are offering. And the smartest people the people who are going to succeed are the people who are looking at the platform, understanding what devices are being offered to them and still finding really interesting ways to tell stories. I think the amazing thing about TikTok is it makes it so user-friendly and so accessible for so many people in the world. All you need is a phone. You don't even need to have video editing skills. They provide all the tools for you. And the reason it is, in my mind, has boomed is because of that accessibility and how amazing that is. And 
you know, from up from from our brand Bleacher Report and, and House of Highlights and all that, I think you see someone like the broadcast boys who have really interesting stories to tell or are really fun things to do, and they have figured out sort of you know within a week, as I as I mentioned, how to tell those stories in a really positive way or how to tell them in an effective way, I should say. So I think that at the end of the day, like you just have to understand that what what a platform has to offer and then bring in smart people or have smart people at your company who can test those platforms, experiment with them a little bit, find a pattern, and then tell the stories you want to tell in that smart, effective way. Yeah, definitely. That makes complete sense. So I'm going to wrap it up by looking at the future and maybe a few learnings. One of the things that's undeniable is the role that digitization has played in the development of film, TV, gaming, and music. Now, all of these have been particularly successful in engaging both mass audiences and also some of those hard to reach younger audiences as well. Daniel, you've got over a decade's worth of experience in music. I'm just going to start with you about what learnings we can take going forward from these industries or maybe music in particular for sport in terms of engagement. Sure. And I can I can tell you for sure that in the 2000s, when I mostly worked in music, like people were definitely not saying that we were good at digital at that point. There was <laughs> there was a lot of like, why didn't you legalize Napster? Why didn't you do this? How did you let iTunes get built? Like, wasn't that dumb? Um, to which I'd say like we were, well, I, I would defend as I worked at Sony Music for, for, for most of that decade. Um, I, I think that the big difference between where I'll talk mostly about music, so that's my experience, but the big difference between what's happened in music, I think the same is true in publishing and, and, and journalism and, and, and movies to a lesser extent, maybe, um, is that digital transformation was driven by necessity in, 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 those, in, in those industries. Like consumer behavior changed. Like if you didn't get good at digital in, in those industries, your business didn't exist anymore. And you definitely, you had this lag. I mean, we was, there was still, CDs were still easily, CD sales revenue was still easy, like more than half, more than 50% of revenues kind of in, in, in the sort of, you know, 2010, 2011. And you had a big kind of dip as that went down before streaming revenues had come back, had come up to kind of make it the sort of more, more profitable business it is again today. But I, I moved across and I started at Seven League in 2014 and, was amazed that some of the stuff that was just day in, day out, like business as usual, like stuff that we would do in music around digital, just in terms of running channels and running websites and, you know, um, making content, uh, like didn't really exist in sport. And and really uh, at the time in sport, it was because I, I think that the, the main revenue streams for most sports, so uh, broadcast and sponsorship and then direct revenues through ticketing and merchandise, none of those things have been negatively impacted by the internet in, in the same way that... Um, that uh, to an extent piracy in music, although I don't hold that piracy actually drove significant revenue issues for, for music, more what happened in music was the unbundling of the, of the album. So previously, if an artist did, you know, made two songs that you liked, well, you had to pay £15 to buy an album of 10 songs to get those two songs that you wanted. The great model for the record companies. Um, and I think this is what will come in sport as well. There was a time in the early 2000s, late end of the 90s, early 2000s, where there's a really clear consumer demand for the ability to just buy the song I like. And um, I remember going to being you know, at conferences and things like that. And someone would go, why can't I just buy that one song I like? And someone from a record company would be like, well, 
we've chosen a single. You could buy that one song. There, there you go. And, and it was really kind of against the tide of what people clearly wanted. There was a clear consumer demand for that sort of, I just want the track I want. So then iTunes came along, unbundled the album. All of a sudden, that you to get those two songs, you only had to spend you know £1.58 or, or something like that to get those. So suddenly the profit margin is, 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 is way lower and, and, and then that caused a bunch of problems. And then the shift came along on what kind of finally nailed piracy and music was services like Spotify and all the other streaming services where you now get basically everything for what is um, still feels like I think is incredible consumer proposition for $9.99 or thereabouts in any currency per month for all music ever. Um, that's probably more than most people spent on on CDs in the, or, or physical music in the, in, in the year as well. Um, but it was it was necessity and consumer demand that drove that, and and I guess it will be interesting to see. Obviously, you are starting to see revenues now, particularly with broadcast kind of maybe plateauing in sport and maybe kind of coming down. And maybe if you're tier two sports, if you're outside the kind of the the big tier one sports, maybe those broadcast deals just going away entirely. I mean, we work with several kind of governing bodies for sports in the UK where you know their 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 content might be on Sky, it might be live on Sky, but Sky are not paying for that. Um, Sky are helping them by broadcasting it because because it gets them audience and. And there's not a right deal there. Um, so, and, you know, someone that might have had a five-year contract with the BBC, like that's not being renewed now and, and things like that. So, so that necessity is going to start to come into it now. And I feel like, um, I mean, you're not going to immediately get a bunch of OTT direct consumer services for every single, you know, every single sport or club uh, that, that will fill that gap. Not, 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 not a chance, not even really compete with that gap. But, um, but I think what you... You know, if you think about the things that are where it feels like there is clear consumer demand, like all you can eat streaming services does feel like that thing. And you feel like that will bundle back together again. I know there's lots of individual ones now and, and everything cycles between unbundling and rebundling and it will come back together. The idea that you could pay for just your club if you're a if you're a fan of a team or a club and go, I just want to get the stuff for my club through the season. I feel like there's there's definitely a consumer demand for that. And at some point that will that 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 will that will, that will come through, I think, inevitably. And it's like uh, I guess things like clip rights on um on social media which i guess is something uh, is obviously something that bleacher report are, uh, are involved in now with the, with house of highlights is that those there was a period where everyone was clipping content uh you know taking clips of videoing their tv or, or whatever um and and putting those on on social media and it was inevitable that at some point people would start doing deals to legitimize that and and, and you know commercialize it and and then kind of everyone's happy no one people rarely you know, certainly far less um, film their TVs to put it on on social media now. Still for for some things, but um, but because that content's legitimised and it's out there, and you feel like that it's that consumer demand that will drive a lot of the change in sport that's already been seen in in, in music and other industries. The comparison you make there between the industries is really interesting, and how consumer demand can drive that change. Now, given the events this year in European football, I think it's safe to say that fan dissatisfaction is at an all-time high. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops in terms of consumption habits going forward. Varun, would you agree with what Daniel was saying before? Like, Have you seen other learnings from those other entertainment industries that you are feeding into your content creation? You know, honestly, like I I think that there's a lot to take away, period. Um, I feel like that we've learned a lot already. And what Bleach Report's doing is is sort of like other sports brands are looking at us and taking away what we're sort of doing. I don't mean to, you know, blow smoke, too much smoke up my own behind, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're super engaged with our audience. We're, you know, whether it's clips, whether it's the types of content we're creating, all, all kinds of stuff. I mean, if you look at our NFL brand, uh, Gridiron, I mentioned earlier how we are, you know, if, if you look at the history of football, 
uh, in the US, uh, so American football, there's been this, the way it's been covered is like, just as a sport, what's happening on the field, um, no sort of even recognition that these are individuals who have lives outside. Um, you know, we launched our BR Gridiron brand just about two years ago, and it's already at 2 million followers, or, or excuse me, 1 point something million followers. And it, it, it's just what we really wanted to do here is like remove the helmet basically and like showcase and make this a player first type thing. And I mean, you see that in music, you see that in all these different uh, other entities where people care about celebrity, people care about musicians, people care about these things. And, you know, we quickly figured out that our audience do care about these players. They, they have that attachment. We talked about emotion. We talked about all that stuff. So absolutely, you know, and, and we've seen other brands do this as well. We've seen other sports brands kind of look to how we how we're using illustration animation across the board on all of our platforms, particularly on our beer gridiron brand and start to adapt towards what we're doing. So yeah, absolutely. There's learnings across the board and we're always looking to, you know, realistically, we're not necessarily looking at what other sports brands are doing. We're looking at what other brands period are doing and, and thinking about how we can adapt some of that, some of those things to um, bleach report itself, because quite frankly, we feel that we've done a lot in the sports world uh, or in the sports field that, you know, it's not really worth our time to necessarily look at like, I mean, sure, there's a lot of good things happening in sports. I don't want to deny that. We're looking at all those things. We're taking learning, but we're still trying to revolutionize what we're doing in sports at the end of the day. It definitely feels like we're at somewhat of a crossroads for the digitization of sports rights and keeping a keen eye on developments going forward will certainly be really interesting. So thank you both very much for that. I'm sorry to say that's all we've got time for. I want to thank both of my guests, Varun and Daniel, for their time and for sharing their insights. Be sure to follow Bleacher Report on social media to see the great work that Varun and his team have been doing and to learn more about how sports organizations can optimize their digital strategy, head to 7 As always, for more on Ampere's research and services, you can go to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Amp Amplified and thank you very much for listening. Listening.